This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Mickey Drexler and Gap. You know, it is always the sense that those who were there didn't realize it was a crisis, but I knew it was a crisis, and that was all that really mattered. And when the earnings came out and the stock dropped from maybe in the 20s, it dropped to the teens, and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, what have I gotten myself into? Now, Mickey Drexler took a failing retailer and turned it into one of the hottest brands of the 80s and 90s. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Generative AI is not a one size fits all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Okay, so if you're under the age of, say, 25, it might have thrown you off a little bit to hear me describe Gap as a hot brand just now. And I don't blame you because right now the brands with the most buzz aren't necessarily the legacy brands that have been around for a long time. But hear me out, because at one point, it seemed like everyone was talking about Gap. There were SNL skits that parodied the stores. Janine Garofalo played a Gap manager in the cult classic film Reality Bites. Sharon Stone even wore a Gap turtleneck to the Oscars. In other words, Gap was a big part of pop culture. And the person who was pretty much responsible for that was Mickey Drexler. But when Mickey got to Gap in 1983, the brand was actually in trouble. And the company's founder, Don Fisher, was on the hunt for someone who could turn things around. So he hired Mickey, who at that point had already rescued the women's clothing brand, Ann Taylor. And so for the next 20 years, Gap became the place where the cool kids shopped. 
And, as you will hear, Mickey even went on to create Old Navy, then eventually ran J. Crew and started a brand new brand, Madewell, which is a pretty incredible story, especially considering that Mickey Drexler grew up a pretty shy kid in a working class family in the Bronx with zero plans to become a businessman. I don't remember having the greatest childhood in the world. I think uh, there were issues. My mom was uh, sick with breast cancer uh, when I was a youngster, and I kind of knew that. My dad worked in the garment business. Uh, He worked uh, as a button and piece goods buyer for a uh, coat manufacturer. Uh, I knew intuitively as a young kid he wasn't that successful Mm. uh, because I'd go to work with him at the coat manufacturer's offices. He worked in the shipping room. And the reality of his job was uh, not one where he was kind of a boss to anyone. He was actually taking orders from a lot of people. It all led me, you know, long story short, to be very uh, uh, ambitious about what I did to try to not be my dad. And um, so I think that was a really important motivation for me growing up, uh, in in the Bronx, hmm. when you were when you were a kid, um, I have to assume that you didn't have a whole lot of money. That you your family didn't like. To, what, did you live in a house? Did you live in an apartment? Yeah, I grew up in a in a ground floor apartment. Uh, it was uh, a one bedroom small apartment. You know, small kitchen, a tiny foyer, a living room, and a bedroom. I slept. Uh, in the foyer after I was out of my crib. Hmm. So as you walked into the apartment, there was my bed Wow! right in the center of things. Uh, but, you know, when you're a, a kid growing up like that, you don't realize if you're rich or poor or whatever because the only life I knew was the life in the Bronx. But uh, my father reminded me that we were not really rich. Huh. Uh, well, I remember how much money he made because he always had a, a wallet with a lot of cash in it. But he actually made in those days, because I once took the payroll to the bank, and I was always curious what he earned. So I, uh, I was probably 15 years old or 16, so I took the payroll to the bank, and I went through everyone's paycheck. Uh, I felt a little guilty about it, but what the heck, I was curious. And he was making $15,000 a year, probably in 1960. Uh, 62. Uh, and But what really disturbed me is most of the other people were earning more of a salary than he was earning. Mm-hmm. People who I thought would be earning less than him uh, were earning more than him. Uh, so, uh, so that was very difficult for me to take because he always talked about the rich people he did business with. And rich in the, in the 1950s or 60s sometimes meant owning a Cadillac. But he instilled in me this wish, and I say he instilled it, and it was probably him and maybe myself, to get out of the Bronx someday, to live a better life someday. And uh, I, I was quietly very uh, uh, ambitious in that regard. What, what about school? Were you, were you a talented student? Did school come easy for you? Well, I, I had school phobia. I remember going off to school and, you know, one can be in hindsight more psychological, so to speak, but I believe I was deathly afraid of leaving leaving my mother. Um, So my father would drag me off to kindergarten the first few days and he wasn't a warm, fuzzy guy at all. 
uh, as as I know him and remember him. But uh, so I had a school phobia. I would uh, I've never said this to anyone before, but uh, every uh, morning I'd wake up and I'd gag a bit about going to school. So I disliked it intensely. Uh, I was uh, uh, I was always anxious about it. Uh, and I carried that through my years. Now, the gagging, I didn't, I, I'm embarrassed to say I gagged, but I did. And uh, I, I didn't take that through my entire life, but uh, through the grade school, et cetera, uh, I was incredibly uh, unhappy leaving home every day. Not that home was so great, by the way. It wasn't like I was leaving anything, but I was fearful of school. I, uh, uh, but the irony is, the irony is I think I did pretty well. I was very shy in class, but I think I did pretty well. There were five kids who got into Bronx High School of Science in a class of, I'm guessing, 250 kids. And I was one of the five, which kind of, you know, was privately a huge honor. Um, oh, my God, you know, that's really, I mean, and all you do is you took a test. So I passed the test, made a huge difference in my life. Uh, by going to science, and therefore I went on to college, in which I'm not sure I would have uh, gone on to college because it wasn't, even though it was a Jewish family where education's important, it didn't hold the same importance in my family. And my mother died when I was 16, so she wasn't there pushing me at all. Yeah. And my father, you know, wasn't ever pushing, but I went to City College for two years. Uh, and then uh, went to Buffalo for two years. So I went off to school. Of course, everyone at science went to college. So that was a huge uh, positive in my life, going to Bronx Science. Made a huge difference for me. When you, when you were, you know, when you went to, off to college and, and sort of started to think about what you wanted to do with your life, uh, did, you, did you think, I'm going to get into retail? I'm going to... I'm going to run companies. Like, what was what was what was the thing that you thought you were going to do? Well, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. My father always talked about owning a company someday, getting into business, buying a house. So he created these uh, imaginary fantasies I had in my life. So uh, I think for me, it became part of my life where I worried about how will I make a living. Mm. No, I never thought about retail. I never thought about anything other than getting a good job and uh, and hopefully doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, I always worked. One thing my dad did for me is he always made me work when I was in high school. Yeah. Get up, don't sleep late, go to work. It wasn't kind and gentle. So you you went off to and I guess you you got your degree in Buffalo and then you went off to do an MBA, um, yes, in Boston at Boston University. How did you? How did you end up? I mean, how did you end up getting in? Get even getting into the apparel world? Like, what? What was your first job? Yeah, in that. First of all, I'm a big believer in DNA. Right. Right. Uh, nature, nurture, and I always ask people I interview and meet, how did you get into art, science, commercial, this banking. And there's usually a thread that runs through people's lives, musicians, singers, artists. Hmm. And the how do you got into for me was my father loved clothes. He was impeccably dressed and he spent what I thought was a lot of money on clothes because sometimes I go shopping with him and he really cared about the way he looked. 
So I think, uh, I think there was this DNA of my dad being in the garment business. I was delivering peace goods. I was doing all sorts of menial tasks, deliveries and all, but I never looked at it as menial. It was a way to kind of make some extra money, which I hoarded in my drawer at home. <laughs> I always saved the cash. I always was afraid of not having any money. But I think when I was in graduate school, uh, there was a job at ANS in Brooklyn, which is now Macy's. ANS is no longer around. Loved the job. I felt grown up. I was making $125 a week. And uh, that was between my first and second year yeah. of uh, graduate school. So that was my first real garment job, aside from working in my dad's company. And so when you finished your MBA program, you went to go work for a ANS? No, I'll tell you what happened. And this is a long story short. So I was going to work for ANS. I really did a great job there. They told me I was, you know, I did a project. I did this. They offered me a job for $11,000 a year. And I was going to, ready to take it. But a friend of mine was a finance guy and they offered him a job for $11,500 a year. And the $500, I was furious, the nerve of them to offer an unknown $500 more than me. So there was something going on in my life there. The fairness of it all, which exists today, by the way. Hmm. You know, I, I have that thing in me that still exists in terms of, is that fair? Is that right? Is that this? Is that that? And so at the end of the day, uh, Bloomingdale's offered me 11500 and the best thing I ever did at that point was take the Bloomingdale's job. They were up and coming, and I was fortunate enough to work for a woman named Katie Murphy who kind of taught me the fundamentals of buying nice goods, buying color, buying focus goods. And from then on, I, I uh, kind of had a, a, my own private formula to build companies. I mean, it sounds a little dramatic and silly. But Katie was extremely influential for the year and a half I worked with her as my mentor. Yeah, you, you. I guess you, 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 you know, you sort of worked your way up through Bloomingdale's and Macy's, um, pretty I, quickly. I worked my way up through Bloomingdale's. I was the youngest, fastest buyer in the company. I was there six months, and they made me a buyer, and that never happened. I, I was so happy and touched, I cried. For someone like myself, where I always wanted to be successful. I was 23 years old or whatever. Mm. I said, oh my God, what a what an endorsement this is. And uh, so I did really well there. I worked for six years at Bloomingdale's. I then went to work at, uh, at Macy's. I stayed a year and a half and I left uh, because I felt it wasn't for me. And then I went to work for A&S. And so I spent 12 years working in the department stores of which my first three years were the fun. Sure. And then after that, you know, you can work your way up, but working your way up in lots of companies is saying the right thing to the boss, yeah. looking the right way, being political enough, sucking up, so to speak. Right. So I didn't really uh, work my way up. I did, but it wasn't fast enough. I wasn't doing enough quickly enough, and I wasn't able to think the way I wanted to think about things uh, when I could make things better. Yeah. How do you make things better? No one's listening. No one's really paying attention. Mm. You're lucky to get a hello. I wanted to keep moving fast like a racehorse as I could handle more in my career. Hmm. And I guess like late in the 70s, you were uh, recruited to be the president of, of the women's fashion brand, Ann Taylor. How, how did that happen? Yeah, it was 1980 to be exact. And uh, I was at A&S, not happy, 
And the not happy on my work is not a, a rare thing for me. You know, it was like, okay, I'm ready for the next. I had this burning desire to keep moving and keep kind of this creative drive internally, which, you know, when you're going through a lot of these things, you really can't explain it and you can't identify it well. But I met the uh, the corporate people who owned Ann Taylor. Huh. It was not doing very well. Uh, and uh, I was uh, 35 years old. I said no twice because I first said I didn't want to work for the founder, not for any reason other than I didn't want to work for him. I wanted to be the boss. So I was having dinner one night after I said no twice, not happy in my job at A&S. And uh, a friend of mine who was probably 15 years older, very influential, very successful, but I said to uh, him, well, I'm uh, considering this job. I've been turning it down, running Ann Taylor. And he said, why? You know, if you could run Ann Taylor and be number one, and, and I think at that point they might have offered me the job, and I still, for some reason, maybe I was afraid or scared because I never ran a company before. It was a small company, had 25 stores. And he said, I'd rather be the president of a 25-store company doing $25 million than as I was a vice president of a $500 million company. This is 1980. And he said, just take the job. And I, I called the next morning and I said to Manny Rosenberg, who was the president of the corporation, I said, hi, I'd like the job. Best thing I ever did career-wise. And what was what was going on at Ann Taylor at the time? Was it doing well? Was it no. growing? No. Uh, they were in trouble. It was losing money. And that was a small company. Same owned, Brooks Brothers was owned by the company, a few department stores. And they said, we bought this a year or two ago. It's losing money. And we need to make, make it successful. I didn't know what that meant other than I'll do my best. So there I was. I started. Uh, I ran the company without lessons. I was kind of doing it from gut instinct. Uh, didn't have a lot of wisdom at 35, but, you know, I, uh, I had an eye for merchandise, which I think was kind of the DNA, so to speak. And we, uh, so we built it to 55 stores, made it very profitable, but it was bought out by a bureaucratic department store group after I was there six months, but I stayed for, f for four years and then left because I didn't want to work for, for allied stores. That's, again, part of you know, my, my tendency career-wise is I want to work for the best or do something myself. What, did, what were some of the things that you, that you did there or that you had to change to, you know, to start to, to, to turn it around? Well, you, you know, it's very funny. So much of life is intuitive and instinctive and, and following your judgment. No one gave me a playbook, but I always knew, and I said a while back when I was with Katie Murphy in Europe, we always bought the best. We always bought great color, and you got to be a marketer, and that turns and creates companies' values. And so when I went to Ann Taylor... One other thing I learned there, this is really important, and it changed my career, is uh, Brooks Brothers was owned by the same parent company. And Brooks Brothers was its own brand, its own label, and I noticed how profitable they were. I decided to take a page out of Brooks Brothers' playbook, which was have your own label. Hmm. So we took Ann Taylor from a 
a multi-brand business to a, a, a brand called Ann Taylor. And we started Ann Taylor Studio. Now, it was all... It was no playbook. It wasn't like this big strategic discussion. We didn't hire consultants. Yeah. You just do it. Now, I wasn't a student of the business. I just always try to buy nice product, trending product, cool product. You know, it's like, oh, my God, look at that T-shirt collection. Oh, my God, look at look at this or look at that ribbed turtleneck from Marina Gini. This is kind of simply stated. It was nice product, nice clothes, and it was cool looking. Yeah. So, okay, so you you spent three and a half years at Ann Taylor and was, I mean, did you during that time, what, I mean, do you remember the revenue yeah, increasing? Went, did, do you remember the company? Yeah. yeah, it went from 25 million to about 60 million. Wow. Became a very hot company, but I needed to leave because I couldn't afford to upgrade my living in New York. Huh. But I just wanted a nice apartment that was in Manhattan that we could afford to live in. And we, lo and behold, couldn't afford to move to an apartment that made sense for us. Right. So, uh, so uh, I don't know if I was looking for a job, but Don Fisher called me. Don Fisher, the founder of Gap. Founder of Gap. He calls you out of the blue? Yeah, he called me out of the blue. Yeah, but people do that. You must have kind of sent signals out that you were, you were looking for a change. Looking, and I was running this specialty company, and I was one of the few people running a specialty company who didn't own it. And uh, so Don called me, and we started to chat. He had Gap, which he knew was doing poorly. 400-plus stores, they were doing $400 million in sales. Uh, made $22 million that year, which is not terrible. It was 5% or whatever. But he knew it was going south. Well, what is it? What, what, what was there? I mean, like if you went into a Gap store in 1983, like what would it look like? It would look like a, a discount store with ugly merchandise. Wow. Yeah, that's what it would look like. So it was uh, it was super uncool because Gap, when it started in San Francisco, was kind of like countercultural. And, yeah, exactly. Right? In the early 1969, it was kind of countercultural. It was cool. It was Levi's only. And in its day, it was the hottest jeans brand in the world. Wow. Just out of curiosity, what was one of, the, one of your observations about the way they were managing the company at the time, bef- right before you joined, that was a problem? Well, everything was always on sale and always discounted, which is the, the standard today. Right. Number one. Is that like the death knell in, in fashion? Not anymore. Not anymore. But then it was. But then it then it was that ugly merchandise. But how did Gap allow itself to get even get into that position when you know right before they called you? Um. Well, th- then you're talking about many many companies in the world allow itself. Management loses loses point of view. Management is trying to not take the appropriate and balanced. Uh, risks. Management doesn't recognize the problems. They don't recognize how bad the goods are. I don't want to mention companies' names, but I could give you five to ten companies today that are in the same position huh. Gap was in. All right. So Don, so Don Fisher's like, hey, we'd love to, you know, to maybe have you come run this thing. And it doesn't no, sound... Sa- it didn't start that way. Okay. What did he say? He said, why don't, why don't you start a new company for us? Huh working in New York because Don was an entrepreneur and I got to know him after six months or so we chatted and I realized that Gap was not going to be around to fund a new company if it was if the way they thought the way they ran the company 
uh, it was it was kind of just poorly managed, and the earnings were going to go down, down, down. So how did how did Don Fisher convince you to go work for him? Well, it was very clever. Uh, I said no. The company is is in trouble. And uh, when I said I, I didn't want to do this, he he made me an offer. Okay. Uh, to buy, uh, I could buy in a uh, a house in San Francisco. And this is a three-year deal. So I could index the value of New York apartments. So uh, I could go out and get six apartments in New York, nice apartments, three-bedrooms apartments, you know, the classic seven- or eight-room apartments, and get the, the prices of those in 1980. And then uh, I could go and buy a house in San Francisco, and in three years— uh, if I got fired, because everyone was kind of fired before me, there was three people who were fired, mm-hmm. I could always afford to move back to New York, right. get another job, and live in a nice apartment. Huh. So I, I said, yes, I'll move out for three years, and that's the deal we did. Right. So you uh, you accept this offer from, from Don Fisher, and this is what, like, I guess 1983, and you, you relocate to San Francisco uh, from New York because Gap is, is in San Francisco. And, and what did you discover when, when you get there? Like, what's like, like what are your impressions a- at that time? Well, it was a nightmare. I left Ann Taylor on a Friday. I flew out to San Francisco on a Sunday evening. Uh, I was living in a hotel and commuting back to New York for the next eight months. Huh. Now, I'm a New Yorker, born and bred. I, I couldn't get used to San Francisco, so I went through a, a pretty serious depression my first year or so, at least, hmm. uh, saying, what am I doing here? And I'll, I'll never forget, I used to be out there and thinking, this is not my people, it's not my country, it's not, you know, nothing against San Francisco. It's a perfectly great city. But for me, you know, the old Frank Sinatra song, Making It in New York, it just was very difficult for, for me to adjust. And I was very unhappy. When you got to when you got to San Francisco and you started, you essentially took took over Gap as the as yeah. a CEO. Well as the president. I took over as president. As the president. Did 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 was morale okay? I mean the company was still profitable, if not extremely profitable, but it was you know, it wasn't losing money. So, I mean, did did people have a sense that there was a crisis or did it did it seem okay? You know, it is always the sense that those who were there didn't realize it was a crisis. But Don knew it was a crisis and I knew it was a crisis. And uh, and that was all that really mattered. And the crisis was that in the first year that you took it over, profits fell from $20 million profit to 12 which is which is not right because there were decisions made before you got yeah, there that but, would have you, you know but as a 39 year old first time I was running a public company it was awful for me I bet I mean I, I mean it was awful I you know because they'd write about it they'd say this that and the other thing they would say this 39 year old was brought in and he hasn't he has, he's made it worse yeah right exactly and <laughs> and when the earnings came out and the stock dropped from I forgot what the stock price was maybe in the 20s, it dropped to the teens. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, what have I gotten myself into? Wow. And and the first year and a half, I'll never forget this, the first year and a half was a nightmare for me, a living nightmare, because I didn't feel we could do it. Uh, and I was getting very nervous. Well, in, in that first uh, year and a half to, say, two years, when the company was bleeding a lot, um, 
I mean, what were some of the things you were doing to stop the bleeding? Well, the first thing I did was I took markdowns on ugly, bad merchandise. You've got to do that. So I've taken markdowns. I mean, when that means that means that you just you sell them for pennies on yeah, the dollar. You sell them for, in this case, it might have been 50 cents on a dollar, but we had to sell them no matter what because you're tying up all that cash in bad inventory. So the first week I was there, I went through the entire assortment. They had those stitched back pockets or whatever, put them all on sale. And that's where Don and I had our first big fight because you can't put everything on sale. I said, I have to, to get rid of it, create cash to buy more goods. I always felt in my life, I still feel this way, that everything really desirable is too expensive. Sure. Now, first of all, when I was a young person, I couldn't afford anything expensive. I always, and I said this to Ralph Lauren, I always admired what he did. Uh, always admired what Ralph did, but his prices were always kind of a little high. And I, and I thought the world needed a lower-priced, well-styled, good-taste brand. And that's what Gap was. It, we came out with jeans that were, you know, mid 35 bucks. The T-shirts were $15 instead of maybe 25 or 30 The jeans were 35 and then we made them cool. And it was all taste. And then we advertised. And our first ad was I'll never forget we did an ad on jeans know-how. We said we know how to make jeans because I was impressed with what uh, Gap did in making jeans. So yes, it's product, marketing, advertising, and having great stores. Hmm. And we relaunched Gap in 1985 in August. We redid every store. We took 430 some odd stores refixtured and redid and repainted every store in the company. And there aren't many people who would do that, frankly. And that's what turns around a company. And so when you say turn around, I mean, even in that first year and a half, the the company you know, was losing money as you got there. You stopped the bleeding. Right. And then I guess within two years, you start to see the beginnings yeah, of... Yeah, really ex- very exciting. It was a very hot company. At what point did you, did you say, all right, let's drop all these other brands and just sell our own brand? Well, the, the first week, we I, I made a decision the first week, because you got to act quickly. I said, the vision will be Gap. That will be the vision of this company. Be simple, focused, and that will be the vision. Now, I don't want to say the same thing would have happened today. There's other things you have to do to turn companies around. But in those days, they had all these bad labels because they were embarrassed of the Gap name. Yeah. You know, that it was a damaged brand. But I like damaged brands. Coming up in just a moment, Mickey Drexler took his bold vision for Gap and turned it into a company worth billions of dollars. And then what happened when that popularity started to disappear? Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it took a few years, but Mickey Drexler completely turned around Gap from what he calls an ugly discount store to a trend-setting powerhouse. And he did that by buying better materials, using brighter colors and simpler designs, and of course, really striking advertisements, including one particular ad campaign starting in 1993 that showed people like Miles Davis and Andy Warhol and Ernest Hemingway wearing clothes kind of similar to what you could buy at Gap. And it turns out that campaign was pretty effective at making Gap cool. Usually hugely effective. Uh, the Individuals of Style campaign, which was done by uh, woman Maggie, who I worked with for years at Ann Taylor. I'll never forget, she showed it to me, said, what do you think? And I went crazy. It was just pictures of, of, of actors and writers, musicians, right? Just black and white photos of people in Gap clothing. Yes, yes. But the backstory was that we wanted to show that Gap was cool clothes, but you can wear it with every other kind of cool clothes around. Designer clothes went with Gap. The Gap t-shirt was very chic. Uh, what's the actress's name who, uh, um, who wore the Gap mock turtle at the Academy Awards? Sharon Stone wore it at the Academy Awards, and uh, I forgot what year it was. Yeah, I mean, I remember Gap in, in the 90s as just a, a very sort of simple yes. place, you know, yep. jeans and solid color shirts, maybe, you know, a few with stripes, just very clean, simple clothing. Yep. And, and I imagine that was dramatically different from the way it was when you joined. Oh, dramatically. It was, it was, uh, it was a hip company. It was cool. It was high taste. You could be proud of wearing the clothes. Uh, we improved quality. Huh. Uh, it was absolutely different. It was night and day. Did you think about who you wanted your customer to be? 
Always. And, and how, yeah. And who did you want your customers to be? Well, <laughs> at Ann Taylor, it was always uh, Jackie Kennedy. Always Jackie. That was, would she like it? Uh, I didn't have an individual at Gap, but it was always someone who, uh, who fit the ideal of a, cool, hip customer who didn't want to spend a fortune on their designer clothes, right. who could be cool. And it was, you know, aspirational, but I didn't have a name of a customer, Yeah, but I knew, I knew what he and she looked like. And you have to know, you have to know who they are, but it was a broad range at Gap. Gap was for everyone. So, um, how did, I mean, how did Old Navy start? Cause Old Navy obviously is a spinoff of Gap and, and I, I guess that started what in the nineties? No, I'll tell you, Old Navy is a really interesting story, and it it wasn't a spinoff. What it, it what it was is I read in the newspapers, you know, Gap in the in the 1992-1993, everyone gets copied in the fashion apparel business. You always get copied like crazy, and there's very few fashion companies that don't hit a wall. They come back, but they hit a wall. Gap was in the early 90s starting to hit a wall. Uh, Walmart had a Gap department. Everyone was copying Gap because that's what happens. You know, today you can see the same thing going on where people copy lots of other people because it's successful. Sure. I read an article in the New York Times one day, uh, and I'll never forget this. It was uh, Dayton Hudson, now Target, was starting a new company called Everyday Hero, and they said in the article, I don't know if they put it in their press release, it was going to be a copy of The Gap at cheaper prices. Huh. And I, of course, competitively got, well, you know, the hell with them. I got, you know, I got pissed off because you just get that way. But I said, you know, this is a very smart, research-centric company. Something's going on here. And, uh, you know, I got over my upset very quickly went to, when a store opened a month later, went to Mall of America to see their first Everyday Hero was the name of it. And it was, in fact, a copy of Old Gap. And I said, this is really a very weak copy of Gap. And uh, not good, but they did something to come up with this idea. So I got back to San Francisco, gave 10 people $200 each in the demographic I thought would be Old Navy, which was lower than gap and i told them to come back in a week i signed them kmart sears uh, walmart come back in a week and tell me what you bought and your impressions of the goods so they did that and then the most important statistic that i found was the jeans in america this is 1994 80 percent of the jeans in america in 1994 were sold for less than 30 dollars well gap started at $35 for jeans, up to 50 or 60. And I'm saying, oh my God, I'm thinking we are in the sweet spot of the jeans business and uh, we are not even close to the sweet spot. 80% are under $30. So that was all I needed. And then uh, decided to open up Old Navy. Now, we didn't have a name then. And, uh, and I was in Paris with Maggie, who I worked with in those days. And we're driving by on Rue Saint-Germain, a bar. It just happened to be a bar on the way to the airport. We didn't stop by. It was called Old Navy. It's still there. If you look up Old Navy, there it is, a bar that's still around. So took the name and said, what a great name for a company. 
Old Navy. It sounds like it's been around forever. So registered the name in America for free because no one had the name. And uh, we, we opened up the first Old Navy store. It was called Gap Old Navy. Cindy Crawford was our opening, uh, like our celebrity guest. And we had lines up out the door. Hmm. And, uh, and it was wildly successful. And, and Old Navy was really designed to be like, if you didn't have the cash for you know, Gap or Banana Republic or J. Crew or whatever, you know, you could go there and you could find some great stuff. Absolutely. It was fantastic stuff. And I'd say the advertising campaign put Old Navy on the map along with great goods and great marketing uh, in a nanosecond. It was then the fastest to a billion dollar apparel company. Wow. It was very successful and still is, I think, a very big chunk of uh, Gap Corporation's earnings today. You know, you turned Gap around. It it became like like a rocket to the moon for years, pretty much until 2000. And then, bam, sales just start to fall. Uh, I mean, the stock price collapses. So, so what was going on at that point? Well, uh, not. I, I don't want to sound defensive. I can tell you exactly what went on. Uh, and uh, it's part of, as I said before, every fashion business at some point hits a wall. I'll tell you what was going on. Uh, there was the... Uh, dot-com slowdown, so there was a, a tough environment in the marketplace. Uh, I got sloppy looking at H&M being this thing that came to America. They lined up around the block, and I kind of took Old Navy a little too fashiony, if you will. Huh. And uh, we opened up so many excess stores. Too many stores. Uh, too many stores, taking our eye off the ball and dealing with the, the dot-com uh, implosion or whatever. And the business really went bad. You know, it's interesting because, um, I mean, this is a similar story with, with Starbucks, right? There was a time where they just were growing and growing and growing and growing. And then, of course, in around 2008, they really had a collapse. Um, did you, I mean, it, on the one hand, you know, you your mission as the head of this company and as somebody who's who's working for the founder, was to build it and to grow it. And so it, it seems like it would make sense for you to want to push for opening more and more stores. But on the other hand, they can come and bite you in the butt, right? Yep. Like yep. It, it, it sounds like that happened, but it, it, it doesn't sound like you could have known at the time that it was going to be a bad decision. Or could you have known that? You could have known it because a lot of the stores were opened uh, very close to other stores. Ah. They were within, they were sometimes within, uh, you know, a, 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 a long throw from one store to the next. It was, wow. uh, and, and look, we all in this industry, look, at there's more store closings than there are openings today. Here you have this track record at this point of like, you know, what, uh, you know, 15 years of just profits, of taking this company from $400 million a year to like $14 billion in revenue a year. I mean, you basically were making good decision after good decision and probably lucky decisions too. There's always luck involved. And I'm trying to figure out, given how how much experience you had gained at that point and how, how many smart moves you'd made, 
Like, did, were you just kind of blinded to the success that you had up until that point? I, I, I was never blinded by the success because every day I got up worried, no matter <laughs> how successful. I worry a lot. Right. I, right. I, I've always worried. Right. Uh, I think there was. Uh, uh, I would say that we had a strategic difference, Don and I. Sure. And you know we're both entitled. We both made our mistakes to the store openings. And I think it wasn't just he and I. It was every retailer in America was opening up stores for the sake of opening up stores. Hmm. And then this dot-com thing comes in, in, into the world and blows everyone away. And now it's still blowing people away on it. But uh, I, I would say guilty as charged. Uh, I should have been stronger. One of the things I did not do and I resent, I should have fought more so for what I believed in. Hmm. And I didn't. I should have said, this is crazy. We can't do this. But uh, I didn't do that. And that that is something that uh, I live with. I mean, I, I've gotten over it because it is what it is. But uh, the fact is, I, I, I should have spoken up more so. Hmm. So there's a crisis. You've got to figure this out. What were some of the things you were doing in that period? Were you closing stores? Were you r r changing the the apparel or the designs? What, what were some of the things that you had to start to do? Well, you had to start to figure out how to slow down store openings dramatically. You had to figure out how to get the goods on target again. You had to fire certain people who weren't doing their jobs well. And then you had to be relentless and focused. And, and you're fighting this battle to fix all the goods. You sit down, you focus you know your life, quote-unquote, is depending upon you to fix it, and you show the, the strong leadership you have to show. So, so okay, it's, it's 2002, and, and you've got a plan to save Gap. Yep. But before you can even start to fix it, some, something happens. You, you get fired. Um, were you expecting that at all? No, I, uh, I, was, I should have read the tea leaves. I was stunned, uh, angry pissed off. How, how did it happen? Did, did Don call you in his office and just say, no, and you just... well, <laughs> here's how it happened. There was a board dinner the night before. Uh, this was the board dinner where we were going to show goods, sit down with the board. It was in May. It was, I believe, when we had the board dinners and all that. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm noticing, and I'm showing all the new goods, by the way, that we're being shipped that fall that we're going to turn around the company. Now, Steve Jobs was on the board, but he didn't show up because Steve didn't like going to board meetings. Mm. But uh, so I, I get a call from Steve. I leave the meeting. He calls me and says, you're getting fired tomorrow morning. Mm. So why did Steve tell me? Because as he said, he's my friend. And they didn't tell him until that night because they didn't want to tell him because <laughs> they figured knowing Steve, he would tell me. So I called Don that night, Tuesday night, and uh, I said, I heard I'm going to get fired. I said, I'd like to see you right now if that works. So we, he goes, come and see me at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I went to see him in the office at 8, and he fired me. Wow. And he wanted me to leave the building that day. And, uh, and I, I was, you know, I said, gee, um, 18 years, you know, I, I knew I wasn't stealing or anything. Yeah. And, uh, well, what did I do wrong? Uh, so I was, you know, I was hurt as much as anything because, you know, you can get fired, but do it in an, kind of an elegant way, you know? 
But there must have been, I mean, there must have been tension between the two of you for a while leading up to that point. Always tension. Yeah. We had great tension throughout the years. No doubt. Yeah. But, I mean, looking back on that relationship, because Don is no longer alive, right? He's passed away. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, you... uh, you were the operational guy of this thing that he had founded and he was the founder and so he sort of saw himself as the visionary but you were also a visionary you also had a vision for what you wanted to do sure and you can see how that would create tension because on the one hand he's thinking this is my company and this guy is like he's the vision guy i'm the vision guy (laughs) i i think so of course i took it personally but yeah, you were there for what? 18 years. 18 yeah, years. Yeah. 18 years were you, I have to imagine you were devastated. I was devastated, but I knew why it happened. And you live with it. I mean, the, it was the greatest thing because I could move back to my hometown. So uh, it's just business is business. You you walked out of um, out of that relationship with Gap and, and you had now at that point really had achieved this hope of being financially you know, independent for the rest of your life because you you were able to cash in your your stock options and walk away, you know, essentially a rich man. You could have just kind of hung out and, you know, I don't know, gone to the Caribbean and just like lived the rest of your life playing golf. You you decided to then join J.Crew and to become CEO of that company. What uh, this is now, I guess, in your you would have been in your 58. Why? 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 I mean, I get it. You want to do something interesting again, but that's stressful. That's like a whole <laughs> new. Well, I love creating. Look, my imagination is—it uh, drives me. Uh, I can't help but you know be creative, and I've always admired the J Crew brand like crazy. I admired it, and knew it was in trouble, deep trouble. It was in trouble when you got there in two thousand two. Oh, terrible. What was going on? <laughs> it's the same old story. Mismanagement, bad goods, hmm. discounting like crazy, no respect for the brand, a weak, weak uh, management, uh, and uh, this pretty much a dysfunctional company. So when you got there, I guess I should mention, you didn't get there just as a CEO. You actually took some of the money that you made from selling your stocks at Gap to buy a chunk of J. Crew. You actually became an equity owner of J. Crew. Right. I, I did that because I thought it was a great opportunity. And um, and I always admired and I, I had a great sense of what J. Crew could be. What did you have to do at J. Crew? Was it sort of a did you kind of use this the playbook from Gap or or was it a completely new one? The playbook is the same. The right goods, the right marketing, the right people who get it, uh, having a strong dose of creativity as a premium in a business, along with a strong dose of strong operating disciplined executives. Now, today, you'd add digital marketing, you'd add Instagram, you add Facebook, you add things like that. But the playbook is the same. Now, today, there's so much competition that exists in the marketplace, so it's probably a harder playbook. But this was 2002, and uh, we, we did it pretty quickly. I mean, by the way, it takes a year and a half to fix something. So Gap took a year and a half. Old Navy took, to start it, it took about a year, a year and a half. J. Crew took about the year and a half or two years. 
to fix it. And uh, Madewell, which was a, which which we started, uh, took six years to make a profit. So this is interesting. Yeah, we, we should we should mention this. I mean, there's so many companies that you've co-created, um, Madewell among them. J. Crew, you join in 2002, and it takes a, a, a little bit of time to turn it around, but then it starts to grow again. Yeah. All the way until 2015. It, it was the it, it, 2015 was the, was the first year since 2003 when right. sales actually shrunk at J Crew and Madewell outperformed J Crew that year. It's interesting because we're talking about a very challenging very industry very. now, right? Brick and mortar retail clothing stores like in the age of internet and Amazon. It's a new world, but Madewell, it looks different. It feels different. It's it's yep. almost like that kind of store is really blossoming and you know and thriving in America, and the J. Crews, the Gaps, those ones are are having a harder time. What what explains that? Like what explains the Madewell kind well, of? Well, you know, you know it's, that... it's a really interesting question, uh, and uh, I I think Madewell. You know, I bought the name right before I joined J. Crew. I I bought it thinking that the name would inspire me to start a company, and it did. The legacy stores, people don't care so much about them. They've gotten way too big, way too common, way too the same, and I think they've lost their edge. And big is the enemy to a degree, uh, in one sense. I think the companies are getting tired. They're getting familiar. They're not as exciting as the new kids on the block, although Madewell is 10 years old now. Uh, And I don't think they have focused their assortments in, in extreme way that Madewell has focused its assortments. But it's also newish Madewell. It's just being discovered. Those other companies are, I, I mean, you call them legacy companies, and the legacy companies are having a tough time. You are, um, you stepped down as J. Crew CEO, I think in, in 2017. Um, you still own, I think, about 10% of the company. Is that right? Yes. What do you, th- I mean, when you think about a company like J. Crew, right? Which is which is a you know you walk into J. Crew, there's still great clothing there. There's still great options for men and women. Um, is it you know? It, do you see kind of a a possibility for a brick and mortar sort of model like J. Crew to to come back? Because you know J. Crew is is selling some of its stuff through Amazon, right? And and they're trying a bunch of different things. Um, there's also talk that you know J. Crew could one day file for bankruptcy. But uh, but I wonder, is it if you if you could find a a, a Mickey Drexler, a 39 year old Mickey Drexler, like you're the Don Fisher, to come into that company and do what you did for Gap? Do you think it could be done? Uh, I think it could be done if you could find that person. Hmm. I think it's a, it, it's a great franchise. Has it, it, it has had a great reputation. It's gone through a lot of problems uh, of late. We all know that. But I do think it's turnaroundable. I think I think any brand that's well known is turnaroundable. But it takes a certain type of talent in merchandising and marketing and digital marketing to do that today. I've interviewed so many CEOs and. Generally, I found that CEOs tend to be like if it's a personality kind of type, it's it's somebody who's kind of even keel, doesn't kind of you know lose it when things start to go a little wobbly. 
but 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 you for everything I've read about you you uh you know you get excited you're volatile you're you get angry you're overjoyed you get anxious nervous like all the things that the classic CEOs don't they 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 don't do and uh, and you've had a lot of success doing it um I don't know. I mean, how, how do you explain that? You know what I mean? You know, you you probably have known tons of CEOs who just seemed very even keeled. You know what's interesting about that? Uh, I, I think the classic CEOs in America aren't necessarily the best CEOs. Huh. You know, I don't know Phil Knight, but I assume he's not a classic CEO. Right. We can name people who are not classic CEOs who build companies beyond the expectation of where they go. Um, but a lot of companies want classic CEOs because they don't want to fool around. They don't want to have any trouble with the marketplace, with the stock price, or with taking undue risks. Steve Jobs was the furthest thing from a classic CEO. Sure. I've shared every thought I've always had with the boards. If you ask any of the board members, do I share? I probably share too much, not too much, because you can't share too much. But I'm an open book, and my emotions and feelings are open. I say exactly what I think at the board meetings, and uh, I ask a lot of questions. That's the way I am. I don't think that the, the model CEO necessarily is the model CEO. I think the best CEOs are founders, people who, like myself, have a stake in the company, both emotionally and passionately, uh, and really care and fight for everything and care every single day. And I think it's usually a founder, even if they can run or not run the business well, they care a lot. And give me those kinds of CEOs. Yeah. You know, I read a quote, I think it was Jim Cramer who said, Mickey is the most successful uh, CEO I know, and something like the most successful CEO I know and the most insecure. But I wonder, A, if that's true, and B, if that is true, do you think that insecurity actually fueled your passion and your desire to make things work? I think fear and insecurity uh, drive so many successful people. Huh. It's the fear of failure. It's the responsibility you have. And it creates this huge drive in us that, you know, that never ends. It never stops. You, uh, you know, and, and you know this over the course of your career, um, you know, certainly anybody in a position is always going to have detractors or people that you upset, people you had to fire. But um, but you also inspired a lot of loyalty. How do you, how did you and do you, you know, keep people motivated, inspired to work hard for you? What do you do? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, what I do is I treat people exactly how I wanted to be treated when I wasn't treated the way I wanted to be treated. I want someone who really cares desperately about their products, who answers their emails. Try to do the CEO email game. How many, how many CEOs answer their emails? I, I used to play that game. It was rare, rare. And, and I have always had a rule that it's respect. You answer employees' emails, associates' emails, customer emails, and answer them and fix the problem immediately. That's the rule. How many CEOs do that? Mickey, do you think that you were born 
with leadership skills, or do you think you develop them over over time? Well, uh, I think I develop. I wasn't born with it because I don't think I was a leader early on in my life. I mean, I did run for the eighth grade president's position, <laughs> but I think as I became successful at a relatively early age, uh, it just built a lot of confidence in me. And uh, I had a gift. I, I think, you know, nature versus nature. I, I was given a gift in merchandising and intuition, maybe, uh, in reading people. Uh, and that took a lot of years to come out. And I think helped me become a much better leader than uh, than not. We we've obviously we've talked about some of the mistakes you've made um, along with the the triumphs. Um, what is what is the is there a mistake that you can think of that that really shaped you and helped you become a better leader? Some some screw up that actually you're glad happened. That's a good question. Um, screw up that I'm glad happened. I think getting fired at uh, at Gap made me a much better leader. Yeah. And uh, and then he told me, uh, I'll never forget this, he told me he made a mistake. Don he told you he should never have fired you? Yep. So, you know, I think it taught me to go on, rebuild, get up. I got knocked down badly, by the way. Uh, and I think it made me feel stronger, uh, less fearful. As I said, what's the worst thing that happens? I always tell people, look, I was fired. It's okay. And that gift gives you the confidence to go on and do better. That's Mickey Drexler. He's a former president of Gap and former CEO of J. Crew. By the way, after we recorded this interview, Mickey announced that he is also stepping down as the chairman of J. Crew in order to devote more time to his own project, Drexler Ventures. But he said he's still going to stick around as an advisor to the board. Thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today.